for me, you know, my prioritization is always, you know, the company and then my team and then myself. And I think, you know, when you're, when your priorities are in, you know, some version of that order and everyone else's priorities is in some version of that order, that's when, that's when things, you know, really start to work. And that's when you can, you know, much more easily put yourself in someone else's shoes and really kind of slow yourself down enough to think about like, okay, like where are they coming from and what's their perspective and what am I missing? Because if what I think is totally the right solution to this, they're not seeing, then I'm, I'm either not communicating this right, or they have a perspective that I don't have. Like I'm, I'm missing something obviously. So what is it? And I mean, so that for me has definitely been intentional to a certain extent of like, getting more into that mode because it like it feels right you know that that feels like a great way to communicate and partner with folks welcome to the software misadventures podcast where we sit down with software and devops experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production we are your hosts ronick austin and guang we've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hey everyone, this is Ronak here. Our guest in this episode is Bruno Connelly. Bruno is a VP of Engineering at LinkedIn and leads the site engineering organization, which is responsible for LinkedIn's production infrastructure. He joins the show to talk about his journey in tech, from teaching himself how to code at a young age, building ISPs in the early part of his career, which has some fun stories involving sleeping in the data center, and to now leading the SRE organization at LinkedIn. He talks about the early days at LinkedIn that involved a lot of firefighting to keep the site up and some members of the team trained their spouses to take the alerts while they got some rest. He also shares how the team built technical stability and scaled the platform, which now supports 750 plus million members. We also dive into how he grew the SRER globally and overcame challenges that came with the growth. Throughout this conversation, he shares various nuggets of wisdom, like how to stay calm under pressure and how to make people feel at ease, as he describes his leadership style, people who have influenced him, and what he thinks is a positive way to collaborate with people. We had a great time talking to Bruno, and we learned a lot from him. Please enjoy this fun conversation with Bruno Connelly. Bruno, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So while we were researching for this episode, we learned that you started working at a very early age and you came from a non-traditional background. So we thought we would start at the very beginning. Can you tell us how you got started in tech? I have to. I'm, I'm also now curious how much uh, research you guys did and how many, how many surprises I have in store for me. Uh, uh, not a lot, just some. <laughs> so in terms of, I'll go, I'll go way back if, if you guys don't mind, uh, in terms of like kind of my intro to the industry and infrastructure um, and frankly, kind of being an SRE. Like I like to joke that I've been an SRE since I was 10 years old. And, um, while it's a joke, there's, there's kind of some truth to it. Um, and it would probably be more like maybe 12 or 13 years old. And so the kind of condensed version of this is, you know, like, like most kids that grew up at the time and in the region that I did had kind of passing exposure, exposure to computers, uh, like the, the Apple II, the Atari 800, the C64, um, the TRS-80, you know, just kind of here and there, everything from like in school classrooms to like in a mall, in a like electronics boutique or, you know, one of those. Um, and I think when I was about, and, and I was always, I was always that kid that was like drawn to the, like, I don't know what this is, but it's super interesting. Um, and, and I need to know more about this. And when I was about 10, my uncle uh, was a, uh, a computer hobbyist at the time, and he had, you know, this room in his house that had um, a C64, also an Atari ST, um, a bunch of mini keyboards that he had um, connected to. The, if you remember the Atari ST, um, one of its selling points was the MIDI interface uh, and, and a modem um, and then like big stacks of software. So that was like the first opportunity I got to really kind of get pulled in to firsthand ex- uh, exposure as well as just like the opportunity to like experiment and play with with these super fascinating devices and a couple of things one 
uh, CR games was uh, he had like this big box of, of uh, you know, questionably downloaded software. Um, and one of those things that I, I stumbled upon, like just trying these things out was police quest and police quest, like totally just like immediately sucked me in. I don't know if you're, if either of you were familiar with the, the Sierra series, like they, you know, they took the approach that, you know, text-based adventure games had done and then layered on, uh, a graphical aspect where you navigate a character through a world and then type, uh, uh, what you would, uh, what you would have the character do to, to go through the storyline and solve puzzles. They were just super well done, super immersive. Uh, Ken Williams, who founded the company, actually just uh, just wrote a memoir of sorts. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I think it was "Not All Happy, Not All Fairy Tales Have a Happy Ending," um, which I would I, I, it's a recommended read. Um, I, partially for me, like it's you know, given it just has so much tie into my intro to computers. There's a lot of nostalgia for me, but it's it's also a, a great read. So anyway, so th- those games really kind of pulled me in, and then the kind of next step from that was the modem and the BBS scene at the time. And, uh, you know, initially BBSs were just like an entry point for me to find more software, um, but very quickly turned into like this whole other world of, you know, effectively like super early online communities, people uh, contributing to message boards together, um, electronic mail with each other, uploading and downloading software. Uh, So, you know, long story short, I got very involved in the BBS scene and, you know, ultimately ran my own BBS, which then, you know, got into... Um, you know, taking software that someone else wrote, you know, kind of reverse engineering it, um, extending it on my own. Um, you know, that's effectively where I, like, unbeknownst to myself at the time, taught myself to code. Um, slight snippet, there was, I don't know if I'm remembering these details correctly because it's just been so long. Um, on the on the Atari ST, there was a BBS software package called, I think it was BBS Express ST that had uh, a, basically like a scripting like slash macro language built into it that you could extend and like build online games and doors and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking back like 10 or 20 years later, like, oh, that was my intro. That was like my introduction to writing software. And I didn't even realize it at the time. So uh, long story short, you know, I spent, you know, probably like from age 12 to 16 to running, you know, a, a BBS that, you know, got progressively bigger and larger and had, uh, um, you know, a larger audience. And as I could save up money in any possible way, I would, you know, upgrade my 1200 baht modem that I, uh, I, uh, got from a neighbor that had like sitting in a closet to like a U.S. robotics, uh, courier HST that, you know, set you back like 500 bucks at the time. Um, uh, getting a hard drive, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, you know, like ran this online service um, that like had to be up and available for folks. And I'd like got, I took it very seriously and got very immersed into it. So from there, that led me to, you know, ultimately uh, starting an ISP with a small number of folks building a regional ISP, later working at a much larger regional ISP um, in San Francisco, um, which was a blast. Uh, this company called Slipnet that like, I think we were we brought some of the first DSL to to um, the Bay Area at the time, de- definitely to the city of San Francisco, and um, uh, and then ultimately into consumer internet and, and where I am today. So it's like it's kind of funny. My you know my path has been almost kind of linear, <laughs> and I I like to think, and of course I'm biased that the you know the ISPs in the '90s, the early '90s, and like the early days of dial-up internet was kind of the some of the formational and kind of uh, like uh, you know uh, proving grounds is the right word, but like that was that was SRE work. Um, like you were an engineer that you were a software engineer, you were a systems engineer, you were a network engineer. Like you you know you were punching down um, pairs of copper on punch down blocks. Like you had to literally kind of do a little bit of everything to build and maintain a set of infrastructure that other people rely on that you want to make as resilient and available and performant as possible. We, we heard some rumors about you were sleeping in uh, the data centers. Uh, which, uh, which phase of this uh, did, did this happen? Yeah. I mean, I, you'll have to tell me your, your, uh, Research sources. <laughs> we are a very professional, Later. you know, uh, podcasting. We do not disclose, you know, those uh, sensitive information. <laughs> right. So, yeah, there was this picture that, like, some of us followed me, and I, I don't really even know how. Um, you know, I think, I think, thanks to you know, social networks and whatnot, these these things now live on. Um, I was so I worked at a company called Digital Island in the in, in the late nineties that was also like global ISP, like later turned into um, an early CDN play. And 
you know, part of that is like we built a bunch of data centers um, uh, all over the world, and and uh, I was super fortunate to be able to be a part of of uh, a bunch of those. And there was one, I think it was, I think it was in London in the Docklands. I don't remember where we were just um, uh, you know working, you know, through everything we needed to do, and um, you know, kind of working around the clock because we were young and, and silly and enjoyed it. And uh, when it needed to take a break, I built myself a bed of uh, out of cardboard boxes from like Sun, you know, E220s or whatever it was that we were building that data center out with. And somebody snapped a picture of me curled up sleeping on the stack of Sun cardboard boxes that I fashioned into a bed. And that picture is, is apparently still on the internet. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we're going to need to look deeper because when we were researching, we couldn't find this picture of yours sleeping on a cardboard box. But it will be featured picture now. So, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it, it, it's probably not indexed, but I, I'm, I'm happy to share a copy with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that would be great. So uh, today you lead the site engineering organization at LinkedIn, and uh, you joined when the SRE team was seven people, which was more than a decade ago. Uh, can you talk more about how you came to join LinkedIn and what the early days were like? Sure. Um, yeah, kind of a few things to, to unpack in there. Uh, so in terms of coming to LinkedIn, I was uh, previously at Yahoo. I joined there via the to me acquisition and was at Yahoo for seven years. And like, it was just an amazing, fantastic and formative experience. And that's where I got so much exposure to everything from, uh, you know, thinking about scale in ways that I hadn't previously, um, uh, amazing infrastructure engineering talent and just engineering talent in general, as well as just like really grew my network and met a lot of folks that really, you know, continued to uh, play important roles in, in my career. And, uh, at Yahoo, I, there were two projects that I, um, you know, felt super i still feel super proud to have been a part of one was uh, i think we called it search x I, I actually don't remember it's been so long ago which was taking the um ink to me search engine back end, bringing it into the yahoo environment and then migrating yahoo's um search traffic which i believe at the time um uh used google um you know as an oem provider on the back end and we moved it to the to, to um uh, you know on-prem uh search engine back end and the second was what was called project panama internally which was like a complete reboot of yahoo search advertising platform um everything from like the advertiser tools to um, advertiser features, like I think like the introduction of ECPC, stuff like that, to like new ranking and relevance um, mechanisms to a complete rewrite of like the backend storage systems where previously it was like a monolithic Oracle instance that was globally replicated to a an, an internally built key value store that was, you know, optimized for the, the ads serving data set, et cetera, et cetera. So Within that second project, I met this gentleman named David Hankey, who I, uh, I know uh, has, has, has has been on your has been on your show, and uh, your laugh is appropriate uh, at hearing the the utterance of his name because because he is like just such a force of nature and like such a like not only a great human being but just like a, an amazing like a huge personality that like you know he's very charismatic and and immediately kind of pulls everyone in. Anyway. Um, so David led that project for Yahoo, it was a massive project, and that's where um, I got the chance to get to know Mr. Hankey. Uh, and um, you know, long story short, he retired from Yahoo, and I assumed he was retired and done. And I remember seeing, I think, on LinkedIn that he showed up at LinkedIn, which was super interesting to me, like uh, that he was working again. So. Uh, I think I, you know, reached out to him at the time just of, uh, you know, hey, like super surprised that you're working. Like, what is it that pulled you in? And like, let's talk about it. And and as I spent more time with him, uh, you know, that's where I, I got to understand everything that pulled him in, everything from just like, you know, super excited about the, you know, not just like the LinkedIn product itself, but the possibilities of the LinkedIn product and like where he and, you know, and Jeff Wiener at the time and others at Reed, of course, you know, were going to take the platform uh, as well as just the technical challenges that existed, the scale that was in front of them. And I mean, to be super honest, some of the like technical like concerns and like stability concerns that they had to get to that scale, which was a big part of why, why David was there. And, so, you know, while I was, I loved Yahoo and was super, like I said, I had such a great experience there. It seemed like this kind of unique opportunity to be a part of this, this platform that, you know, the mission and vision 
absolutely like resonated with me and seemed seemed amazing, coupled with the technical challenges and scale that would be in front of it and the opportunity to do that, um, you know, my, a little more, you know, on my own and like go through some of those learnings on myself versus, you know, Yahoo was a, you know, a, I think probably a 5,000 person company by the time, you know, uh, the ink to me acquisition joined and et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that was my intro. Uh, it, that was how I landed at LinkedIn. The, the other part of that question was like early days at LinkedIn, is that? Yeah, we would love to dig into the early days at LinkedIn. Uh, however, one thing which I would like to know is uh, when you were coming from Yahoo to LinkedIn, Yahoo was a much bigger company at the time. And when you joined LinkedIn, uh, were there any surprises, like things you weren't expecting or things you expected to be different? Uh I, 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 you know, I, I imagine the, the <laughs> you know, the short answer is probably yes, but, but also kind of no. I, I'm also guessing that your research probably has some surprises you want to talk about, perhaps. Uh, the, I mean, so here's the thing. So on one hand, like, yes, I think the, and I, you know, don't hold me to these numbers. I'm, you know, doing my best to kind of remember. I, I think the, you know, the whole company was less than a thousand people. I think engineering was like maybe three or 400 people. The, all the entirety of LinkedIn was served out of a, a single data center on, you know, um, uh, pr- probably sub a thousand computers. You know, it was it was definitely different than what I had seen at Yahoo. I guess, you know, one other thing I just want to mention about LinkedIn that was kind of interesting was, you know, LinkedIn had a really long kind of growth curve in, in or, you know, before it hit its knee and its growth curve. And it wasn't like, you know, LinkedIn existed and then, you know, it started scaling. We had to figure this out the, um, you know, there was like an MVP period of the product that was probably like 2003 to 2010, where things really started to go, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of like reached an inflection point and went nonlinear in terms of growth patterns and like member signups and traffic and all this sort of stuff. So I think that was kind of unique to LinkedIn in the sense that there was like a long period of like iteration and, you know, thus to a certain extent, technical debt that just accrues naturally while you're trying to build a product and, and try to find market fit for it. So, you know, no fault to anyone other than that's just kind of how these processes work. So with all that, you know, I would say like, I don't think I was, you know, I also, you know, worked in the industry long enough at that point that I know how, you know, I know how the sausage is made and I know that there is, you know, no such thing as, as perfect infrastructure or perfect environment. So, um, you know, I think if anything, the surprise for me would just be like how fast things were growing. And like, you know, we were seeing record traffic numbers like day after day after day after day. Um, so that, that was probably more of a surprise to me than anything else. The rest was just like, that's what comes along with scaling stuff on the internet and, you know, building, you know, complex software platforms with, you know, hundreds of people working in concert to build them. Like that stuff is, it's not easy and it's not perfect. That makes sense. Uh, now, being an SRE at LinkedIn, I've heard the stories about what the early days were like for the site ops team, especially when LinkedIn was going through this growth phase. Uh, can you describe what some of the challenges were at the time and especially what the life was like on the site ops team and the kind of things you would see on a day-to-day basis given the technical instability? Sure. Um uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there. <laughs> um, I would say the, so back to the point I mentioned that, you know, one, like things were just growing really quickly. And I remember we were literally uncovering new capacity bottlenecks, um, uh, you know, multiple times per week, everything from like, you know, switch up links to like, you know, uh, like, like literally like, Oh, like, yes, like we're now, you know, maxing these things out in ways that we didn't expect to previously, um, so that was, uh, that was part of it. The, the other is that, you know, there was an element of, you know, LinkedIn had taken a pretty traditional operational approach historically. So that, you know, way, way back in those days, it was, you know, Inge was Inge and ops was ops and certain people only had access to certain things. And, you know, some of that in the worst, in, in the, you know, worst cases would result in, you know, op, the ops teams, which was, which was my team at the time, um, carrying a lot of, a lot of weight and, um, dealing, um, with, you know, all of the outages and all of the operational work. And, and, you know, frankly, sometimes being put in situations where, you know, they're probably not even the right, you know, first team to be involved, uh, you know, but just kind of, you know, servicing more as like a 911 dispatcher than an engineer that can really kind of help. And, so, you know, because of that and, you know, this, you know, you probably heard some of these stories and I've spoken about some of them publicly in the past. The, the most famous one, I think, is that 
at the time there was there was a, a pager, um, and I forget what the what the device was. Um, From the stories I've heard, I think it was a BlackBerry. It might have been a BlackBerry. Yeah, that that folks literally like if you were on call, you would get the BlackBerry, so you would like physically hand it off to the next person. And this thing, uh, like, li- literally didn't stop going off. And I'm not like hyperbolizing that, like, oh, it was, you know, you know, it, it was like literally like once a minute there would be a new alert, and you know, you, there would be some level of like triage, you know, and folks would do best effort just given you know how often the stuff was coming in. And some folks said like the story, uh, you know, is that some folks like literally had helped you know train their their spouses and partners to help them. Uh, be able to triage alerts since they came in so they could, you know, get a break and, you know, their partner would let them know like, Hey, this actually sounds pretty bad. Uh, um, you know, there's a problem. There's a, uh, you know, alerts from, you know, graph latency again. Like it looks like this might be gnarly. You may want to take a wake up and take a look. Um, so it was, uh, there, there was a lot going on. Uh, wow. Well, that sounds really rough. And I think the team was seven people at this time. Uh, when you joined, were you managing this team or were you part of the team and on the on-call rotation? So there were, yeah, so I inherited a seven-person team. Um, I don't think I was ever literally in an on-call rotation, but I mean, we were all on-call. Um, uh, like there there was another thing that happened back then. It was called, I think it was called the 6 a.m. shift, where um, if you were like, you know, back in those days, like the traffic peaks would start around, um, around 6am and keep in mind, like the platform was seeing record traffic levels every day and like finding new, you know, um, capacity issues and bottlenecks every day. So part of, I think if it was, I can't remember if it was separate from on-call or if it was part of being on-call either way, there was a 6am shift and you would come into the office at 6am and be at a keyboard so you can be ready or, you know, as the platform, you know, starts to, to fall over <laughs> in the, in the back end and, and help, you know, kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again a little bit. Um, and that, so it, it like the first off, like I want to give credit to that team, like, and many of those folks are actually still at LinkedIn today, like fantastic, fantastic people on that team. And like, you know, I don't want to name too many names because I don't want to leave folks out, but like Tony Kwan and, and Bosky Devaraj can't come to mind. Like both of, you know, are still engineers at LinkedIn today. Um, like it was a fantastic team. It was just like, there was just so much happening. It was more than that team could really, um, kind of handle on their own. Uh, so, so yeah, definitely I spent a lot of time in the trenches. Um, but I don't think I was ever technically on the, in the on-call rotation. Gotcha. And well, things changed, obviously, uh, considering this was such a crucial time for the company. What were some of the key decisions that were made that changed LinkedIn's course and brought in that level of technical stability to take it forward? Yeah, so I don't, um, I, I actually, I haven't listened to your episode with David Henke, um, uh, so I don't know which of the stories he talked about. I actually will. I, I'm, I'm super curious to, to hear that conversation he had with you all. The um, a, a few things come to mind. One is David and, you know, to a certain extent, Kevin Scott, who um, uh, joined as uh, LinkedIn's head of engineering um, uh, shortly after David and ultimately took over for David when he retired. Um, both of those, those gentlemen played a huge role in the, you know, the, the side of transition at LinkedIn. And most of it absolutely goes to David Anke, like full credit to, to David. Um, you know, part of it was like this, this intentional transition to um, a side of culture, uh, a belief that, you know, everything always starts with side up. Every decision starts with side up. And if there's ever a prioritization, you know, conversation or concern and, and side up is one of the options. And then the answer is, is side up, which was exactly what the company needed at the time. And, you know, sometimes that meant pivoting decisions and frameworks from, uh, you know, is the, again, keep in mind, like the company went through this long MVP period. So there was definitely a lot of focus on like product fit and like actually product is most important because, um, you know, if the, if the product isn't right, then everything else can't be built on, on top of that. But, you know, this was now a different chapter in the company where, um, actually, you know, side up is, uh, uh, comes before some of these product decisions. And if that means we need to delay the, you know, the ramping or whatever it is of this, this product feature that we know is going to be amazing. We're super excited about, like, that's totally the right call. So that, um, that was, I would say, one of the, the biggest transitions um, that comes to mind. 
Yeah, David talked about site up and it is something that I can attest to being an SRE at LinkedIn. Uh, and if I remember correctly, LinkedIn was trying to file for an IPO around that time. And uh, there were some questions whether to file for an IPO or not, given the issues with the site. Can you speak more to that? And also, like, what were some of the core principles that laid the foundation for SRE at LinkedIn? Yeah, um, the sorry, you're just you're triggering all these memories for me. The you know is <laughs> you know as I, <laughs> as I was thinking about you know some of those early days and, and scaling and, and the IPO. You know, one thing that I'll just share this briefly that comes to mind is I remember Hanky was actually he was at a in India um, at a wedding. Um, and that's when we were in the kind of final decisions of, of the S1 filing. And we actually, um, uh, there was like an Oracle backend at the time that we were having, that was reaching scaling limits. And I remember, um, you know, we actually had to, we had conversations about, you know, like, does the S1 filing make sense based on, you know, where we are with kind of understanding this, this level of capacity issue? Very different world now. And like to kind of segue that into your other question about the, you know, the, kind of like, I guess, the intention and direction of the SRE team and how that changed over time. The, we actually had three founding principles that we, that we leveraged when we, when we started the team that, that carried us um, quite a ways. And um, the first uh, was that side up is our, is our top priority. And I, and I mentioned this earlier, this was really that kind of converting the culture of the company, you know, and the mindset of the company to, uh, to a side of culture. The second was what we called empower developer ownership. And, that was, um, you know, both on one hand, um, you know, getting out of the mode of like, hey, we want to like, you know, the, the ops team has to be the team that, that owns and operates all this stuff. Like, no, we want to empower um, uh, any developer at the company to be able to do that. And keep in mind, you know, this is a long time ago in the industry as well. And you know, that, there was even, you know, some of this mindset of like, oh, well, you know, can do developers know what to do in production or are they going to, you know, it's like, it's like, well, Hey, like one, I'm not actually concerned about that. Um, and two, even if I were like, let's do it in a way where we can empower them to do it in a safe way. Um, but then, you know, that also, you know, then just pivoted into, you know, a culture of really, you know, wanting any engineer at the company to take great pride of, you know, ownership of what they're building and what they're scaling in production and how better to do that than to like give them as much control as possible. And then the third was the, um, that operations is an engineering problem and treating operations as an engineering problem. And that, you know, meant everything from, you know, looking at how we're hiring, making sure that we're, you know, hiring folks that are generalist engineers, um, obviously a focus on automation, you know, which is at the, you know, near and dear to all of our hearts. And, um, but it, you know, it also meant, you know, pivoting how we think about designing software towards things like resilience and, you know, that not only operations, and, you know, you know, toil related work as, as it's often referred to these days, um, can and should be automated, but also that like, you know, some of that stuff should be just a software problem anyway, and baked into the core software as much as possible. Uh, so those, you know, those three things both were, as I mentioned, founding principles, but also just kind of carried us a long way and played a large role in everything from defining the culture to like the types of folks that we hired, um, to even just kind of, you know, how the team has evolved and, and continues to evolve over the years. So these principles make a lot of sense. And uh, I believe you were trying to build out the SRE team back in 2011, 2012. Now today, the SRE function is relatively well understood. Uh, however, I don't know back in the days how well known it was. So were there any challenges in hiring people to join the SRE team, given how known this function was at the time? Um, yes, <laughs> there, there were, um, there were definitely all those challenges were real. The, uh, you know, I remember at the, at the point in time, I think even that we chose the name, I want to say that was probably sometime in 2010 or 2011. Like it wasn't even like, you know, outside of Google who obviously, um, uh, uh you know, coined the term, uh, literally, um, and, you know, define much about it. Um, that's, I remember like it, it was, it was used very inconsistently at the time. I remember Zynga had an SRE team that I believe like that was literally their knock and they, they called it SRE, um, a very like tier one focus team. Um, 
Facebook had was using the title at the time. That was before they pivoted to production engineering. Um, so like, yeah, it was like super inconsistent across the industry as well. As, so like that was one problem. The other was, I think some of what you were alluding to is just like, it wasn't well known, um, or, uh, you know, it wasn't well understood. And there was like this perception that folks had of operations that we were also countering. So like all of those were real problems at the time. Also, you know, LinkedIn at the time didn't have the hiring brand either. So we had to, we had to get creative with, um, with a lot of just, you know, how we, how we, um, how we attracted and, and hired, uh, hired folks to, um, do you recall what were some of these creative ways that involved hiring people? <laughs> um, the, I need I want to think about that a little. You know, I think the only thing that, that comes to mind was we just got really creative about how we um, targeted folks and just like trying to find environments where it's likely that there are SREs that maybe don't even know their SREs. And that's everything from like folks that were in ISP environments, like I mentioned, to, um, you know, folks that were running large networks at their university um, to folks that were like full stack engineers and, um, and smaller shops, but really gravitated towards some of these problems. That's where, you know, our, our sourcing and recruiting team at the time got super creative of, you know, like finding more avenues where these folks existed, where, like I said, they may not even realize that that's, that's what they are. Um, that's pretty neat. Uh Talking about building teams, uh, you've built out teams globally and twice now, once at Yahoo and then at LinkedIn. Uh, we don't speak with a lot of people who have done this before, so we would love it if you could share your experience uh, building out teams globally and like, what were the challenges that you faced and um, if you have any advice for teams or companies who are trying to build out engineering presence in a new country, like the kind of things that they should think about and they could do to set up the team for success. Yeah, so there's there's a lot in there. Um, I so I've had the opportunity to do that twice, two pointed, both at Yahoo and at, at LinkedIn, and um, in both cases built uh, uh, teams in, in Bangalore, actually um, in, in India, from the ground up. And the the Yahoo team specifically, um, I I had the opportunity to build an inter, a, a team both in in Bangalore and actually a team, team in Beijing. And that was like a whole new world of learning, especially back in those days. This was like probably 2005 or 2006. Of, uh, I remember I was at, for the India team, I was making job postings on my own um, to like, I remember like the, like the Pearl mailing list and just like all sorts of like, you know, you know, weird places where I could, you know, try to uncover folks that, um, that, that would be interested in, in fits for, for this type of work. And, you know, that was, especially at that point in time in India, uh, infrastructure engineering wasn't uh, near as like it, it, that. The, the Bangalore engineering scene had not kind of, you know, moved into that space yet. So, um, you know, the hiring, uh, I, I remember staying up until, you know, 10 or 11 p.m. to phone screen folks to, <laughs> um, uh, to just try and build that initial team. So, um, you know, that, that was a set of challenges on its own. The, you know, in, in both in that case, as well as at the case of, of LinkedIn, when we did decide to grow internationally and into India, um, I, there were a few things that, you know, one was, um, just being able to tap into another hiring market and have the opportunity to, um, to, to take advantage of a hiring market outside of, of the Bay Area at the time. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the benefits of, of geographic distribution, everything that, that comes along with that. Um, and, you know, with that also comes the challenges of how do you keep that team super connected to your point and really kind of identifying with, with the culture and feeling like a part of the team and feeling like they're just like connected to decisions and, you know, it's, it's easy to think about now, but like, you know, put yourself in, in the position of those folks where if they have a question, you know, that, you know, one of us would just, you know, poke ahead over a cube or, you know, nowadays ping someone on Slack, um, you know, they've got to wait 12 hours to, or longer to get a response because they've got to fire an email. So it's like, how do you, how do you account for that and how you communicate? And even like, you know, as you're writing emails to each other, like try to, um, 
predict the next few questions that your colleagues in, an, in another office may may ask so you can answer it ahead of time and you know really kind of shifting the culture to that the other is making sure that those teams have an identity and that they you know have something that they uh, own and uh, you know have some level you know appropriate level of autonomy of like what they're committing uh, their contributions to the company and obviously not the you know the follow the sun support team type of thing which I don't, you know, think anyone is uh, like it's, you know, that ship has sailed. But at one point in time, like there were, you know, that's how, you know, parts of the industry would look at at uh, remote teams or international teams. Were you able to find someone that's based there that kind of uh, help you with, you know, some of the more logistic stuff that you can really trust? Was that like a pretty like important person that you were looking for, or uh, did you like do a lot of the stuff like by yourself? So in the case of Yahoo. Um, uh, there was already there was an, uh, an engineering presence, a small engineering office there. So there was a gentleman there that um, that helped um, make that happen for us. In the case of LinkedIn, um, our our first uh, chief security officer, um, uh, GK, who also was a uh, um, was chief paranoid at Yahoo for a long time, um, he he built that. He was that logistics person for us. So he built our our Bangalore office from the ground up. And that you know, in both of those cases, I think having someone there who really understands uh, all aspects of the company, including the culture of the company is a very important part of that being successful in, in GK absolutely um, played that role. Uh, and then otherwise, you know, for me, it was like a big part of it absolutely was identifying, okay, who are the leaders that we can build around to, um, to grow the rest of these, these infrastructure teams for us. But definitely that, you know, that seed person that, that understands the company, I would, I would say is a, uh, it's definitely a key element if you if you have uh, if you're lucky enough to have it. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, that's super valuable. Uh, switching gears a little bit. So, considering your career in site reliability engineering, I would imagine you've seen a lot of incidents, a lot of outages in your time, and some of these situations are extremely high stakes. They are crucial to the business, and there's a lot of pressure. And in what I have observed and in what many people have mentioned to me at LinkedIn is that when there is a situation like this, you are, if not the calmest, one of the most calm people in the room. Uh, what I would love to know is how have you developed this ability and what are some of the practices that work for you in staying calm under these high pressure situations? Uh, it's a great question. I love it. Um, I think, you know, some of it is you know, super honest. It's just like, some of it's just my nature. I think everything from like genetics to like, you know, adaptations from my childhood or, you know, who knows what that it is. Um, some of that is, is, is my nature and my approach to life and, you know, kind of what feels right to me. Um, part of it is, uh, I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, as you know, you've also been doing this a long time. Like you, you the more you see the way complex systems can and do fail, the more you recognize the patterns and the more you reach, you know, a certain level of comfort and confidence of knowing, you know, how you navigate through these things, as well as knowing that like some of it is, um, it's part of the process, right? It's like an exhaust of building some of these systems, uh, especially when you're moving as fast as we are and with, um, you know, so many folks, as I mentioned earlier, like building in concert to build these complex things, like it is, it's an exhaust of the, of the systems. And, you know, the thing that always is always kind of grounded me to is like all these systems, we, we built them. And, you know, the like literally 100% of the people that made the decisions and put these things together, I, I have access to, direct access to. So what better team to figure out why they're having an issue right now and figure out the right way to approach it, coupled with. And at the end of this, I know the learnings we're going to get, like no matter how stressful and painful it is in, in the moment, the learnings in the end are going to be amazing and are going to make us a better team, a better platform. Uh, and, you know, so like to a certain extent, like I embrace the outages, not because I, I love incidents um, or and definitely don't love outages, but the, you know, like I said, all that there from their part of the process to they will make us better. There will be fantastic learnings from them. Um, and I know that, you know, I don't believe in the apocalypse uh, until the apocalypse happens. And, um, you know, uh, thus I know we will we will navigate an end to uh, to any incident we find ourselves in. Um, I, I definitely don't have, you know, enough uh, street cred on this. But from the few times where I did sort of have to be in kind of a live uh 
situation where there's incident happening and then trying to triage i feel like the one part of it is definitely the technical like hey you know like trying to figure out like this is a complex system how do we do it but then the other part is also like people right like at the end of the day you're working with different people it's the people that wrote the code uh different people understand different parts of the architecture better um i am curious to kind of get your thoughts on you know, there are definitely times where I'm like, oh man, this is such a tough problem, but the people is great. And, you know, we're super like, you know, like uh, really enjoy working with each other. And then they were like all in this together. But then sometimes, you know, it doesn't quite happen. So do you have any um, tips or like kind of advice for like kind of working with people that maybe take a very different approach or people who are like maybe just very like not volatile, maybe that's not the right word, but you know, like how do you kind of deal with different uh, personalities? Uh, during those situations? Uh, interesting question. The, um, you know, I guess the, you know, my experience is that folks are, you know, feeling, you know, uh, you know, volatile to, to your, uh, to use your term. Um, you know, it's probably because they don't, you know, feel, you know, confident or uh, comfortable in the, you know, the overall control of the situation. So I think, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do is to just kind of help be, you know, a bit of a grounding force for the team in terms of, um, you know, my role historically in those things is really just, you know, try to um, uh, ask good questions and, um, uh, you know, and, and encourage others to do the same so we can get all the data um, uh, in one place and, you know, get closer to a point of, of control, as well as just, you know, breaking, you know, separating the team up is needed, you know, getting people um, uh, focused into different areas and, you know, picking, you know, three or four different areas and, and, you know, putting teams in those different places so you can break bigger problems into smaller problems. Right. And, um, that, you know, I, I think if, if, if folks are, you know, struggling in some of those situations, it's probably just because they're overwhelmed. Right. And it's like, it's understandable because it's an overwhelming thing. So if anything, my role is to like help break it into smaller bits so it can be, less overwhelming, including less overwhelming for me as well, because it's, uh, the whole thing can be overwhelming. <laughs> yep. And I can see that being kind of more, you know, being rational, I think it would work for like maybe more peers or like people that are reporting into you. It's like, Hey, you know, let me kind of take a step back. This is what's going on. And, uh, but like what happens if it's like your, you know, uh, someone that's, uh, so I'm like slowly kind of working towards the question. So when, uh, when we're chatting with, uh, Enki, he kind of mentioned that there was this kind of priority zero event, things that not, you know, going super well where, um, you actually, because at that point you were reporting into him, but then you asked, you know, him to actually leave the room. Um, so I think he was very comfortable sharing sort of the, the, the context, but yeah, we'd love to kind of just hear more about what happened, how you deal, uh, dealt with it and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I do, I, I remember the incident, but it never really, it never really registered with me. Like it's not, you know, how you have some memories that like they really kind of sear themselves into your brain. Like it's not one of those memories for me. It's just one that I happen to remember. Just However, another day Hanky at the tell, office, you know, <laughs> but, but I've heard, I've heard Hanky tell this story multiple times. So it, <laughs> it, it, apparently it is one of those memories for him where it did kind of sear in for him. The, you know, I think it goes back to, like I said, how I see my role in those, which is to like help the team feel calm and in control. And like, we're breaking things into, into smaller problems. And, um, and in the case of, of Hanky, he's, uh, you know, he, he, there, there's, there, there's one core difference. I've, I've shared this with him in the past too, between he and I, and the, I would, um, the things where I would feel, you know, the most uncomfortable and, uh, uh, you know, maybe I guess like have anxiety about, for lack of better terms, historically would be like people related issues and like, um, uh, you know, uh, like manage, you know, managing senior folks in larger teams and dealing with disagreements. Like that's where um, I would uh, get more anxiety. And he was a huge uh, source and mentor for me of how to, how to grow and manage in those situations. The technical bits and the incident bits back to my previous point, like those were never really high anxiety things for me. I actually felt pretty natural and comfortable in managing those. Hanky was the opposite. He was the, you know, super comfortable with the people parts and like, Hey, like we can, you know, any, any, you know, whatever the problem is, we can, we can solve it rationally, but would get much more anxious about the, the technical parts. And, uh, so in this specific situation, um, you know, Hanky definitely had, um, it, I, and I, I don't remember the exact outage, I, but I, I think it was like an actual, an outage, like, you know, the platform was down, um, 
and uh, he, you know, he was concerned as, as he should be and in the room. And I, you know, I saw it was kind of reached a point where, you know, while his intentions were, you know, uh, you know, nothing but, but perfect, the result was, you know, just bringing like kind of more anxiety and a little bit of chaos into the room. So I, you know, you calmly pulled him to the side and said, and, and I, I think I asked him to leave the room and, and he, and he did. And, uh, you know, I explained like my approach to the situation, um, that I, you know, like this is, this is the path that we're going to keep taking it. Um, are you comfortable with that? And this is my commitment to you of how I'll keep you in the loop and up to date. Um, does that all sound good? Um, and, you know, would you like to change any of that? And with that, um, you know, my ask is that you, um, you know, you stay outside of the room, just give me the, the space to um, run this so I can, you know, keep the chaos to a minimum. And he, uh, you know, he was, he was super cool with it, of course. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I get, you know, in, Hank and I had a lot of history and obviously still do. So I knew him very well. So it's probably easier for me to have that conversation. Um, but I definitely get that that can be a tough situation for folks, but I think it's also like a very reasonable thing to do. And if you feel that it's the right thing to do, um, you, you should absolutely do it <laughs> in a, in a, in a clear and, and respectful way. The the first thing comes to mind if I'm about to do something like that is like the table flip, uh, uh, gif that's sort of replaying in my head. If I, you know, ask, uh, ask that, but I guess to your point is that, do you think it's like the trust, like, you know, when like that you, you the both of you have built over time such that, you know, that when you approach him, you know, being polite, but then very matter of fact, Hey, this is what's what I'm observing that he trusts you enough to kind of believe you know, your judgment of the situation and then kind of, um, take your advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was a mix of absolutely, you know, he had, you know, trust in me, you know, trust in terms of like, you know, consistency over time, he knows me and how I operate. And, um, and, uh, and also, you know, it's like, you know, when you say the table flip thing, I feel like that's not, you know, obviously no one likes incidents, no one likes outages, uh, you know, like at some point, you know, way back in our history as, um, as infrastructure engineers, you know, you would hear stories of like, you know, people getting fired over incidents and, and things like that. Like, that's not how, um, that's not how the world works, uh, at, at least not anymore in, in my opinion. And so I think that, you know, that's at least, yeah. Um, I think there, there's an element of, of that as well. You know, if, if we're all coming from a place of like, we're aligned on like getting the, the um, uh, getting the company's platform back to a place where, where, where it needs to be um, like, that's, that's the core alignment point, right? Everything else building from that is, is building into a good space. There's a lot to learn there. Thank, thanks for being open about it. Uh, talking about leadership. Uh, what I would love to know is who are some of the people that have had an impact on you who have influenced your leadership style and people that you've learned the most from? Sure. Um, you know, probably like three individuals come to mind for me and I, there's so many, so many more. Like I've, I've been so lucky to work with so many amazing folks and learn from so many amazing folks. Um, so three that just happened to come to mind. One would be, um, Cheryl, I know, who I, um, had the chance to work indirectly for her at Yahoo, um, for a good period. I think she might be at Walmart now. Um, and she had this, um, she, she took over the, the infrastructure teams at, at Yahoo at one point, And it just brought this level of engineering rigor. And like she was, her, her background was, I think everything from like in her early days, medical devices and then um uh, you know the application side of, of consumer internet and um she brought a lot of you know engineering rigor and to a certain extent just like um you know a- accountability through um you know frameworks that we could that really kind of up leveled our our abilities in our game and, and definitely i took a lot of that to heart and she was um a fantastic mentor for me um, uh, David was, was absolutely one. And I, you know, I think we, we've talked about him quite a bit, but, um, he obviously was a, was a big influence on me. And, um, and I, I mean, I can't even begin to think of all the things that he taught me about, about leadership and, um, and how to, how to partner and influence, uh, and collaborate with people. Uh, and then the third would be Kevin Scott for certain Kevin, um, uh, I mentioned, I think a little bit before was, um, 
He was, I think, pretty early at Google, worked on, I think, ads quality and AdWords at Google, and then went on to AdMob and then back at Google and then ended up at, at LinkedIn at that point. And, you know, Kevin, when, when he joined, like, from his experience at Google alone, not to mention building and scaling AdMob, he just understood, um, uh, he had, he came in with this worldview and like, and understanding infrastructure at scale in ways that, you know, few of us did. I definitely did not. And, um, on top of just like being like a pretty impressive human being. And, uh, he, he helped, I don't quite know how to articulate it. Um, the, I guess he helped me kind of understand that, you know, sometimes like as a manager, you almost feel like, you know, that, um, you know, these are the rules that you have to follow. These are the things that you have to do. And like, maybe it's, you know, not the best decision for the team, but it's like what you need to do as a manager. Um, I don't know if that kind of resonates. And he, he taught me that that's like, that's not true. Like, <laughs> like, you know, um, doing the right thing for the company, um, and doing the right thing for your team and et cetera, et cetera, like that you can, you can have all of those things. And, uh, so I don't know if I articulated that very well, but that was, that was pretty eye opening for me as a manager that like, it's, you know, sometimes like, you know, the rules as you interpret them, if it feels like it's, you know, probably the wrong thing to do for some other reason then it probably is. And, and we should do it differently. And, uh, so th- those are, those are the three, the three individuals that come to mind for me. Nice. So zooming out a little, uh, to get your perspective on the growth of the SRE team at LinkedIn, uh, what were some of the growing challenges? I mean, after a point you, you, it, it's not possible for you to know every individual. Uh, so what were the challenges that came with it? And, uh, as you reflect on this journey, uh, what would you do differently? Or uh, another way to think about this question is, uh, if you were to call yourself from 10 years ago, what advice would you give yourself? The So in terms of growing the team, you know, you mentioned I started with seven folks and, you know, that was like sometime in 2010. I think by the time, uh, you know, maybe 2012 or 2013, we were well into the space of like growing the team very quickly and hiring a lot. And, Somewhere in those years, I forget which ones. I literally interviewed every single person that um, joined the SRE team, or, or like interviewed for the SRE team. Like I was literally on every single panel, and um, you know, was doing probably a hundred interviews a year. Um, and because of that, you know, and, and this was when we really started ramping up and growing the team. Um, because of that, I literally knew every person on the team, and you know, had the opportunity to make like an initial connection and get to know each one of those folks. And the, the, my my leadership style at the time, and, and I, you know, it still is, uh, is maybe parts of like what people sometimes call management by walking around. You know, um, definitely like leveraging and not like you know checking on like quality or performance or anything like that, but like like building and maintaining connections with the folks and with the team. And by by you know through that by uh, by virtue of doing that also getting just like amazing insights about you know how how the team functions and what's working and what's not and where like you know i get so many data points about how to to you know grow and and you know continue to chart the you know the, like make decisions about the team and I definitely, you know, reached a point where, you know, it was probably like Dunbar's number or something like that of like, you reached a point where I couldn't scale that anymore. And it was, I think Dunbar's number is like 150, somewhere around or whatever it is, the, 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 I'm not going to give this up, the, the <laughs> be able to do justice, but you know, the, 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 the belief that the, you know, the human brain can only maintain so many human connections and above a certain number, it's harder to, and I definitely, you know, felt a version of that. And that's when had to, you know, kind of like adapt and change my style of not being able to just like have that level of connection with the entire team. Um, but still be able to have, you know, the confidence in data and whatnot that I needed to, to be able to, uh, uh, to make decisions. And, you know, obviously a huge part of that is really just like, um, you know, finding, finding other ways to get that approximation, but also just like building a fantastic leadership team. And, uh, you know, definitely been very fortunate to be able to build an amazing leadership team over the years, um, exact, that's actually knock on one bit of very consistent leadership team in, um, uh, in S3 and LinkedIn. Um, so that, you know, that was a huge part of that journey. Um, the, 
to the other part of your question, the, you know, what would I do differently? I think the, you know, how'd you frame it? Like, if I would, you know, call myself 10 years ago and, um, and give some advice. I think it would, if anything, it would be, you know, there's always some set of, uh, things that you know you need to do because it's the right thing for the team, the company, et cetera. But you're concerned about how to get there or you're concerned about how people are going to react or like one kind of silly example that I remember was way, way back in the day when I, when I first joined LinkedIn, I mentioned like, you know, this kind of ops and inch thing and like literally, um, folks that were developers didn't have shells in product, like they could not access the production environment. And, that, that was actually an easy one for me. Like there were a lot of folks that were concerned, like, Hey, if we give people this access, like what's going to happen? It's like, we'll, we'll manage it. Like it's going to be fine. Um, but another version of that was putting, um, developers on call and it's like, Hey, it's not just going to be the ops folks. And you were like, you're, you're on call as well. Like you wrote this code, like we need, you know, we need your help. And that, you know, there was, there were, you know, there were concerns, you know, and there were folks that were concerned about, you know, everything from like, Hey, that's not necessarily what these people are hired to do. This is a big transition, et cetera. And, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, there's no question this is the right thing to do, but there is a, like, how do we get there and how do we navigate it? And so, you know, that's one example. There were many, you know, things like that over the years that I think every single one of them, um, I just would have done it faster, you know? And it's always like, if you have that conviction that like, it's the right thing to do, even though, you know, it's, um, th- there are things you're gonna have to figure out along the way, just like lean in and, and, and do it and start figuring it out. Um, uh, because when you have that conviction that it's the right thing to do and it's gonna have the right outcome, it always does. And it always, you know, leads to the, the best outcome for the, for the company. Um, and where you're wrong, you, you tweak it along the way. That's, you know, and where your assumptions are wrong, you iterate. And, um, uh, so I think, you know, that's something it took me a while to get, uh, more comfort with. And it's probably a human nature thing a little bit too, to, you know, be trepidatious about some of those types of situations when, you know, you've got like, you know, you're impacting the, you know, the lives of a bunch of folks and like their happiness at work. Like, obviously it's something you take super seriously. You want to be, want to be careful about, um, yeah, move faster with some of those decisions. To, to dig in a little on that, uh, when you're making some of these decisions that you think are absolutely right for the company and right for the team, however, what we perceive as right uh, can sometimes be different. So when you're about to make a change like that and not everyone's on board right away, how, how do you navigate a situation like that? Uh, when, when you have the conviction that this is the right path forward, but not everyone sees it that way yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it you know starts with just you know reaching some alignment as to um, you know why it's the right outcome for the for for the company, even if we don't necessarily know how to get there yet. Like, you know, are we are we in agreement that it's it's the right thing to do? And if not, like, let's iterate on that and figure out you know what we think the right thing to do is, and then you know when it does get into the point of like figuring out how to navigate it. Um, uh, you know, we'll go like, we're never going to, we're never going to make a bad, de- we're never going to intentionally make a bad decision. We're never going to make a decision that is going to, you know, intentionally, you know, uh, make people unhappy. That's going to, uh, you know, it's true about engineering decisions as well. We're never going to make a decision that's, that's going to have a bad technical outcome. Like if, if we don't like, if we're in agreement, this is the right place to go. Um, and you're comfortable that like, even though we don't know how to get there yet, like we're going to figure it out together. Uh, and if we, if we reach a point where like, there's a hard part that we don't know how to solve, then we're not going to solve it until we aren't going to do it until we figure out that, that solution. Like basically like this is, it's kind of in our control, right? Like we can, we can move as quick or slow roll, um, as, as much as we want. Um, but like, let's move towards what we think is the right thing and like what we would be proud of building, um, uh, and then the only other thing I would add on top of that too, is just being super transparent with all the data, you know, sh- like everyone should have access to, you know, um, as much of the data, all the data, um, as to like, this is why we're making the decision. There's no, you know, this is, um, this is it. I, I think as engineers, you know, that, that just kind of disarms us in general. Um, when we see like, okay, like I don't necessarily have to agree with, um, but I understand why and how we made the decision. That makes sense. Oh, there's so much to take there. And I feel like there is so much more I can ask, uh, but we are getting towards the end and we have just a couple more questions for you. So many people at LinkedIn have mentioned this to me, and this is something that even I have experienced that uh, when we are in a group discussion with you or even a one-on-one, 
you have this incredible ability to put people at ease and this is something i've experienced multiple times uh, in addition to that when you have feedback on something that's been presented to you i feel that it has always been delivered in a way uh, that is meant to make the presentation better or the approach better instead of challenging it um, so how do you think about this uh, or these interactions and is this something that you are very conscious about or intentional about um so again a lot a lot in there i think that you know everything uh worth doing in life requires like some intention and some practice for sure and i've learned so much about how to collaborate with and communicate with folks um uh over the years the you know, I think some of the underjumps of what I've mentioned is like, for me, you know, my prioritization is always, um, you know, the company, um, and then, and then my team, um, uh, and then my, and then myself. And I think the, you know, when you're, when your priorities are in, you know, some version of that order, um, and you can help and everyone else's priorities is in some version of that order. That's when, that's when things, you know, really start to work. And that's when you can, you know, much more easily put yourself in someone else's shoes and really kind of slow yourself down enough to think about like, okay, like where are they coming from and what's their perspective and what am I missing? Because if what I think is totally the right um, uh, solution to this, they're not, you know, they're not seeing, then I'm, I'm either not communicating this right or not seeing what they're, um, like they have a perspective that I don't have, like I, I'm missing something obviously, so what is it? And I mean, so that for me has definitely been intentional to a certain extent of like getting more into that mode um, because it like it, it feels right. Like it's like, you know, that that feels like a great way to communicate and partner with folks. Um, the you know, I, I, the other thing I would say, too, is like just in general, I, I very much become an optimist. Um, uh, the you know, the older I get and. A younger version of me would would probably be surprised to hear me say that, and you know, I definitely, um, you know, one, many years ago identified as that, you know, that kind of cynical engineer that could find you know flaw in everything, or you know, find some you know weird intent in everything that's you know that's probably not there, or almost certainly not there. And yeah, I, I think I just reached a point, and like through you know learning from like some of these fantastic people that I've had a chance to work with and learn from, that um, you know that 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 viewpoint. Uh, isn't great <laughs> and and you know it doesn't it didn't always serve me well and anyway where i'm going to this is i i think you know probably sometimes i think that optimism in you know like i i i can bring that out in others and uh so maybe you know that's some of what you hear from you know people feeling you know that the at ease or you know feeling yourself is um some culmination of all those all those things that i just mentioned uh also like just personal connections have always been very important for me. I just, I really like, I enjoy connecting with and, um, uh, and partnering with people. And I think that, you know, goes back to like what I mentioned about how I kind of grew the team and my management style and really building and maintaining connections with a lot of folks. Like, um, you know, I did that because that felt like it felt natural to me and I, I, and, and I enjoyed it and got energy from it. Uh, like that, like that a lot. Uh, I think a personal takeaway for me there when collaborating with people is to think about what they are seeing that I don't and what perspective do they have that I don't yet. And if they are not seeing my perspective, then it's probably because I am not communicating it right. Uh, I think that's a very positive way of collaborating with people. And this reminds me of the quote, and I forget who said it, but it goes something like, uh, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 100%. That um, I, I, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm convinced it's usually one of those two outcomes. If there is a, you know, miscommunication on something, it's either I'm not doing a good job communicating it or they have a perspective that I haven't, um, I haven't uh, sought to understand well enough yet. Um, I'm going to ask a very cheeky uh, question to stay on brand. Uh, so, as you mentioned, so I like your style of um, really trying to get to connect with people, but then you also mentioned that there's kind of a limit, right, in terms of how many people that you can really kind of get to know and then kind of keep in touch. So I guess what are the dimensions when you think about in terms of if you have to <laughs> sort and, you know, filter, like 
how do you sort like what are sort of because to me i guess the two dimensions i think about is like utility and uh you know how much joy i get out of that interaction is that sort of the right way and then some kind of weighting of the two um or is there like a more sophisticated framework that i should think about <laughs> uh we can cut this part out if it's a little bit too cheeky you know i'm just kind of curious um i no i don't think it's cheeky at all i think it's actually a pretty pretty deep question. So it's a fantastic question. I don't, I, I don't know if I've really ever thought about that in terms of like, is there a framework that I leverage the, um, so your point of like utility and joy. Um, I mean, I will say that, uh, I, there is definitely a part of me that, um, will, you know, maybe this sounds even a little self-serving, you know, I will seek out, you know, folks that I get energy from talking to and because like, you know, positivity absolutely breeds positivity. And, and I love, you know, especially on like, you know, a challenging day when, you know, for whatever reason, you know, a bunch of things have happened in a way that just, you know, have you feel, you know, feeling like you have the weight of the world on you a little bit, like a conversation with someone who, you know, has that, that energy, like can just totally, you know, 180 your, your, your entire mood and perspective. So, um, like absolutely one thing I do in general is, you know, have that, you know, a set of folks that, um, you know, not only I enjoy and, and I learn from, um, but also, you know, they bring, um, you know, I, uh, I take some of their energy, you know, <laughs> probably. Um, but that's, that, that's an important part of how, how I keep going for sure. I feel like we can keep going here and ask you a lot more questions, uh, but I do realize that we are at time. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure to spend the time with you, Bruno. Uh, we've learned so much. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, and we really appreciate it. Yep, likewise. It's been a, been a blast. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.